0: So at this point, John is stunned. His mind absolutely boggled at the sheer magnitude of God's perfect plan unfolding, revealed before him. And what does he do? Verse 10, Then I fell at his feet to worship him. Whose feet? If you go back a few chapters, you find out this is the same angel that's been talking to John for a few chapters. This is not Jesus talking and sharing and showing him these things. It's an angel. And he falls down at the feet of this angel to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. One of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. In fact, it's a key verse to every Old Testament prophecy given. That the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. By the way, just going back historically in my own life, the reason why when we started the bridge and started going through the Bible verse by verse the reason why I started looking for Jesus in every chapter is this verse right here the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy therefore if there is Old Testament prophecy it will testify to Jesus Christ And so we should expect it. And we should look for him through all the pages of scripture, in all of the prophecy, because the testimony of Jesus is that spirit of prophecy. But it's a funny moment here. John falls down. He's blown away. He's in awe. And he begins to worship this angelic tour guide, who immediately reacts, Get on your feet! (laughs) It's not about me, dude. Back off. Don't worship me. Because, Because angels are not allowed to accept worship. One angel tried a long time ago. That same angel, now cast out, is still trying to get people to worship him. Even with the audacity of trying to get Jesus to worship him in the temptations we looked at Matthew chapter 4. But angels are not allowed to accept worship. Isaiah 42 verse 8. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48 verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Yeah, but God gave his glory to Jesus. Exactly. (laughs) My glory I will not give to another. My glory remains only for me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity, one God. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. But isn't it interesting that through the pages of the New Testament, Jesus always accepted the worship of people. He always accepted worship. Luke chapter 5, Peter falls down, freaked out before Jesus in this miraculous catch of fish. And he worships and Jesus accepts it. Takes his confession, if you will. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas sees the risen Lord, puts his finger into the, into the nail holes in his hands, falls down before him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He accepts his worship. In fact, Paul and John and all the New Testament writers worship Jesus as God and Savior. Refer to him as God and Savior. Now, the Mormons will actually worship the angel Moroni. Which, the name Moroni is so close to macaroni, I have all kinds of fun with it. You, know? you drive by any of those Mormon temples, you see a little gold guy up there, and they say, hey, it's the angel macaroni, there he is. But they will worship the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith based his whole religion on a revelation given by this exacting angel. By the way, if you want to find out more about Mormonism in an absolutely fascinating read, pick up the book Under the Banner of Heaven. I'm just about a fourth of the way through it right now. It's not written by a Christian author, but it's incredibly and meticulously researched about the history of Mormonism. Joseph Smith over a period of five or six years apparently went back to the same place over and over and over because this so-called angel Moroni kept telling him you got to come back and you got to do it right and if you don't do it right you got to go away and come back again next year. So next year Joseph Smith would go back to get these supposed gold tablets. By the way do you know how he interpreted the gold tablets that he supposedly received from this angel? He used what's called a peep stone which is from necromancy, it's from magic. You use this little peach stone, you put it in a hat, you put your face in a hat, and you read it, and then you can interpret something else magically. <laughs> this is Mormonism. Fastest growing religion in the United States, even today. Amazing. And they will worship Moroni as one who deserves worship, but angels are not allowed to receive worship. Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus and Michael, the Archangel Michael, are brothers. But if this is the case, then Jesus sinned because Jesus Christ received the worship of man. He accepted worship. And angels are not allowed to do that. Colossians chapter 1 verse 8 says, Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And I'll tell you, this angel in Revelation 19 knew that verse. Don't worship me I'm not bringing anything other than that Which God has told me to bring This is his word It's about Jesus Worship God Paul goes on in Colossians 1.9 It says As we have said before So I say again now If any man is preaching to you A gospel Contrary to what you have already received He is to be accursed So whether it be a human being Or even an angel gang And I will talk to Mormons And even say I'll even give you I'll even give you that Moroni actually came Let's just assume for a moment that he did. If that's the case, the Bible says he is to be accursed. It still undermines the entire religion. Because you do not worship an angel, and an angel is not allowed to bring another gospel. And that's the basis of all of Mormonism. The gospel, gang, is simply this. God became flesh. He was crucified. He resurrected. He lives forever. He is calling us home. That's the gospel which you have heard and you have received. Live in it. Well, verse 11 going on. Oh, it just gets great here. Put on your seatbelts. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That has only happened one other time in this book as we've studied through. One other time a door is opened into heaven. It only happened one other time. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 where we see John sees a door open into heaven and he is literally caught up to heaven for this fantastic picture. John representing as we talked about when we studied chapter 4 a representation a picture of the church itself going up. The door is open when the church goes up, when the church is raptured. As we ascend to be with Jesus, the door to heaven is open. But here we are again, Revelation 19, verse 11, at the return of Jesus, when the church comes down with him, the door is opened again. Two grand openings, two distinctive events, separated by seven years. Now, I grew up in a church that did not believe in that seven-year separation. The belief, and many churches still teach that the second coming of Christ is a one shot deal he comes that's it blows everything up takes everybody up to heaven and that's generically it and we sit around for all eternity doing I don't know what describe heaven well I don't know we just go there and at some point and, you know we just float around I don't know halos have something to do with it harps you know but what do we really know about heaven you're going to know you're going to know, in fact, my desire for you in the next two or three weeks as we finish out Revelation is that you know it so well that your tour guides for all these other people who just thought that it was a big generic thing. As people are caught up, there are going to be people raptured who have no idea what's going on because they never studied the book of Revelation. They're going to be flying going, Oh, this is cool. What's happening? And you're going to be flying going, Well, let me explain this to you. See, Jesus is now calling us up to the heavens. And actually, the book of Revelation is pretty easy. If you go back to Revelation 119, there's a divine outline. And this, you know, and That's what I hope. Then you're doing that. and then you, So be, be a good tour guide and then know the stuff. But at the rapture of the church, the church goes up and the door is open. At the revelation or the return of Jesus, the church comes down in verse 11. And why again this seven-year separation? There's a reason for it, a specific reason. Why not just do it all at once, Lord? Why pull us out and go seven years, wrath and, and all that? And, I mean, I understand protecting us, but why does it have to be seven years Number one, because it fulfills Bible prophecy and God keeps his word. Daniel chapter 9 talks about 70 years that are proclaimed for Israel. 70 years that would happen, that must be fulfilled. 69 of those 70 years have been fulfilled, literally, completely. There is a 70th year. And by the way, if you study these things, you know the word year is heptad, which means a period of seven. 70 sevens is literally what Daniel talks about. 69 of those sevens have happened. The last seven has not happened. The last seven-year period. God was that specific, and that's something we can talk about another time, that he is that specific. In fact, we have, um, there's a CD that you can pick up if you're interested in it on the 77s. Call that and just say, I need a CD on the 77s. We talk specifically about that. But the Bible promised. God said, this is how it's going to happen. There will be a seven-year period of time at the end of it that will complete everything that I promised to Israel. So it must happen to fulfill Bible prophecy. But also, also and I love this, it completes the wedding picture. The wedding picture. Have we talked about this in here yet? The wedding uh, marriages in Jesus' day and the Jewish ceremony and how that all worked? We haven't really some of you are shaking your heads. let me bring you up you Bible students may recall this I'll bring you up to speed John 14 chapter 2. Jesus said, "In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. This is what the bridegroom did. The bridegroom said, "I love this woman I want." To be married to her, or mom and dad said you're gonna marry her. That was another way. Which, by the way, Cheryl and I are really talking about arranged marriages. We're really into it right now. <laughs> just thinking, I got some people in mind for my kids. We just line that up, off they go. <laughs> they don't have to have anything to do with it. Just show up, get married, and off you guys go. Anyway, so this would happen. The the bridegroom would would go and, and talk to his father and then work it out. And here's the woman who's gonna marry. Okay, great. And the bridegroom would begin to build. And he would build on to his father's house a room or a couple of rooms or whatever that would be for his home when he first gets married. Built right on to his father's house. I know it sounds a little freaky for us in our culture, but in their culture it was very normal. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, my bride, because I'm going to come back and get you. And I'm going to take you home with me to the place I have prepared for you. He says, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. The groom, the groom would be betrothed to a bride for about a year, and during this time, as he built on this room to his father's house, his father would inspect it from time to time, and and ultimately the day would come when the father and the son didn't know the time or the hour or the day, but the father would say, "Looks good, you're ready, go get your bride." And so the son, completing that work, would then go to get his bride. He took to the streets and he began inviting people, and the time, by the way, was unknown to the bride. Now, she might have some inkling that it was getting close, but she was to be ready, ready to go. So that when she heard the call of the bridegroom, she could get the dress on and whatever she needed and gather the bridesmaids. They had to be ready, and off they went. And the groom would then take the bride back to his father's house where a great celebration. A marriage feast would take place. They would party together. It be a wonderful time. And then the groom would take the bride into the place he had prepared for her. And they would close the door and they would not come out for seven days. Seven days. The bride and the groom tucked away just together. But something else happened. After the seven day honeymoon the groom always brought his wife out to present her to the world. At the end of the seven years of tribulation on earth but celebration for us in heaven the Lord will bring his bride out and present her He will reveal the sons of God to the groaning world that is waiting, as Paul said, for the sons of God to be revealed. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus comes for us in the rapture. He comes with us at the second coming. Look at this. Verse 14 says, The armies, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. What was the bride wearing? Look back at verse 8. It was given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Coincidence that now the host of heaven, the armies, are wearing the exact same thing that the bride was wearing. I submit to you that the bride is the host. That the bride now is following him on white horses. Boom, out Jesus goes. That He is riding His white steed. He is the King coming in all His glory. And behind Him are many thousands, the Bible says, of His saints or holy ones. Check this out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul says, Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The word saints there is hagios. That word I mentioned before it means either saints or holy ones. Hagios. Jude 14 says it was also about these about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, and by the way, and I don't think I've told you this, but Enoch, Enoch is the oldest prophet we have on record. Enoch, who is talked about in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch, who walked with God and then he was no more. The first person raptured was also one of the earliest prophets to walk the face of the earth. And Jude reveals to us that he prophesied early on. The very first prophecy that we have in written record is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what did Enoch say, Jude tells us? Enoch prophesied saying, Behold, Jude 14, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, hagios, saints, to execute judgment upon all. Way back in the very beginning of history, Enoch's prophesying and he's seeing this picture of the Lord returning in his glorious appearing and many thousands of these holy ones, these hagios, coming with him. And you might say, yeah, Rick, but isn't that angels? The word hagios is never applied to angels in the Bible. That's angelos. In the Greek, nahagios, holy ones is literally the word saints, and it refers to the people of Jesus Christ, that they return with him, many thousands of them. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 says the following, you will flee, and and Zechariah is prophesying here, God is speaking to the people of Israel saying, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. The Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word hagios, holy ones, the Hebrew equivalent is kadosh. It also refers to saints or holy ones, and it is not a word that's applied to angels. The Hebrew word for angels is a different word. Kadosh is for the holy people of the Lord or the saints of God. That is, gang, the church in heaven, the bride of Christ. So saddle up and get ready to ride because he's going to blast out of heaven and we're going to be riding right behind him. We're going to trace his trails all the way back to Jerusalem and it's going to be awesome. And Sean wondered, do I get to, you know, cleave a couple of heads on the way down? Do I get to, you know, be part of the battle? (laughs) Well, watch this. You won't need to. But Jesus, Jesus describes this great event in Matthew 24, verse 29, himself. I'll just read this to you. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now listen, be specific here, listen to this. He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds listen to that the four winds not from the earth he will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other in other words angels go get the rest of the saints it's time to go you know Eric he's out delivering mail way over there in that part of heaven go get him it's time to bring him because we're all riding now and so the saints are gathered together and return with Jesus ride with Jesus And John now fills in even more of the picture of the glory and wonder of Jesus himself as revealed in his second coming. Very quickly here, we're almost done. Four designations he gives for Jesus and six descriptions. Four names, six descriptions. Here are the four names. Verse 16 tells us that he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That name that is on his robe and it's on his thigh. I don't know if that's a tattoo or what. That's up to Jesus. He can do that. But King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and it corresponds, by the way, King of kings corresponds to the gospel of Matthew. For Matthew portrays Jesus as the great king. The king of kings. This name connects to this first of the four gospels in our Bibles. The kingly nature of Christ and the gospel of Matthew. Revelation 19.11, the next name given for Jesus is faithful and true. Faithful and true would correspond to the gospel of Mark where the trustworthy nature of God is seen in Jesus who is the suffering servant. He is the one who is willing to do whatever the Father told him to do. He is faithful to the plan of God. And you see that portrayed beautifully in the Gospel of Mark. Now Jesus' return bears out the faithfulness of God, who now follows through on his plan of salvation and judgment over all the earth. Revelation 19, verse 13, the third name, the Word of God. The Word of God. Where did we first learn that Word applied to Jesus? Which Gospel? John. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The Word. The Word of God. So that relates to the Gospel of John. So we see King of Kings, Gospel of Matthew, Faithful and True, Gospel of Mark, Word of God, Gospel of John. Now, among these designations or names of Jesus, something is odd. John is sure to mention that Jesus, as he returns, bears a name that he alone knows. And that's the fourth name. It's a name that nobody knows. Verse 12, look at it real quickly. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Something mysterious there. And this may relate to the Gospel of Luke. How so? Jesus is simply and mysteriously referred to as Son of Man. That is the primary designation for Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, Son of Man. What does that exactly mean? How do we understand that? I believe and I think the designation of Son of Man is so much deeper than we understand even right now. Granted, we can say it points to the humanity of Christ, but there's more to it than that. There's something amazing about that. Luke chapter 17 verse 22 says, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. He says, do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and it shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus gives us some insight. He says, the powers of the heavens are going to be shaken. Remember that in Matthew 24? The sun is not going to give its light, and the moon is not going to have anything to reflect, and it's all going to be dark, and all the powers are going to fall from the heavens. But it's the lightning flashes from the east to the west, from one end of the sky to the other, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be so bright, it's going to be blinding when Jesus comes blasting out of the heavens on that white horse. And maybe a little of that glory is going to be shining off our horses too while we're trying to keep up. But it's going to be amazing. Now I have wondered over the years if there's a way to discover this hidden name, this secret name of of Jesus. The name which no one knows except himself. And you kind of wonder, why does John even put that in there? What does that do to the human psyche? I'll tell you what it does to me. It makes me go, what's the name? I want to know. John says, i got a secret. Jesus says, I've got a name. not going to tell you what it is. Oh, come on. If you're not going to tell me what it is, why why'd you tell me you have a name that you're not going to tell me what it is? Tell me the secret, Lord, I want to know. And I've wondered, is this already embedded somewhere in the scripture? Is it a name that maybe already exists, one that we can kind of figure out? This is one of those moments where you know you're walking on a, on a fine line, and, and I'm going to share something with you, and you may want to ground yourself if there's something metal nearby just to be safe, okay? Jeremiah twenty three verse five, and this is just curiosity. But it tells us, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name, by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. In the Hebrew it's Yahweh Siddchanu. Yahweh said to me. And I've wondered, I've read that verse before and thought, could this be this unknown name of Christ? This name that only Jesus Himself knows. You may be asking, okay, so Rick, is that what you're telling us? Do you think this is the name? No, actually I don't think it is. But I think it's an interesting thought. I think there's a reason why we're told there's a name that no one knows except himself. John sticks it in here, Jesus makes it clear, there's a name. There's a mystery there. It's because we love a mystery. It's because we love to know that there's something more to know. He has revealed so much to us in our study of Revelation and in this book. And yet, gang, there's more to know. We're going to return with him. And, and after seven years in heaven of glory and wonder and awe, there's more to know. We'll be riding with him and someone will say, What's it? He's got a name and he's not telling us what it is. I want to know what it is. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's get to know him better. And see, and we've said that all of eternity gives us opportunity to know Jesus better and better and better. It is something in the heart of man to want to discover. And I tell you, gang, the end of the world will not be the end of discovery. It will be the very beginning of things. The beginning. You think we've been excited trying to discover this planet so far? We've got nothing. On what the discovery of eternity is truly going to be like. So a name that no one knows. Now quickly, the biblical description of Jesus at his return. Verse 11 says he's riding a white horse. That signifies one going to battle. A great king who is now riding to reign. You may recall some 2,000 years back this same Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now that was a kingly thing to do. For a donkey is what a king would ride in times of peace. And so Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem in authority as a king, bringing peace, the prince of peace. But now he comes riding on a steed. And a king rides a steed when he is riding to war as a royal captain. So he's riding a white horse. Verse 12 tells us that he has eyes of fire. We saw those eyes before, Revelation 1.14. John saw those eyes, the eyes of a fiery prophet standing for his people. But now these fiery eyes are the eyes of a judge, angry with sin, ...riding to purge the world. Verse 12 tells us also he's crowned with many crowns. This indicates Jesus' absolute rule. And his rule, by the way, will be a dictatorship. Expect it. Plan for it. He will be absolute authority. He will be the king over the earth. And what's amazing, we'll get to this next week... ...but for all the peace, prosperity, and perfection of Jesus' rule in that kingdom... ...there will still be those who don't like it. There will still be those who have a problem with authority and we'll act out on that. More on that next week. Verse 13 also tells us that his robe is dipped in blood. Now we studied, we looked at at, uh, Armageddon and what's going to happen at that time, but this precedes Jesus' campaign to Armageddon. This precedes the slaying that Jesus will do when he rides back into the world. It precedes it. This is not the blood of rebellious humanity. This robe dipped in blood is the blood of Jesus Christ himself. It is his own blood Which brings up another interesting symbolic ritual, part of the Jewish marriage ceremony. Part of that seven seven days that the bride and groom would be tucked away. For after the wedding night, traditionally the groom in a Jewish marriage had to produce the bedsheet or the bedclothes from the wedding night to prove that his wife was a virgin. And if there was no blood on the bedsheet, she literally could be taken out immediately and stoned for not being a virgin, for being impure. The blood had to produce the proof of that purity. And we have the same thing in Jesus. I have that purity. I have the blood of Christ on me that proves that I am pure. He's the perfect one. He's the virgin. His garments are blood stained, the token of His purity, which becomes my purity. His virginity, which becomes my spiritual virginity. His blood, His life is my blood, my life. He saves me. Awesome. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His robe is dipped in blood. Verse 15 tells us His sharp sword is coming from His mouth. And this is the power of the Word. It doesn't mean He's going to be passing out Bibles, gang. <laughs> not now. The sword that comes from His mouth is the sword that will slay. He'll speak and entire nations will be put down. Sean, you're not even going to have time to pull out your sword, man. You're going to be reaching for it. I'm going to... Oh, it's over. <laughs> he's done. This is the wonder, the power, the awesome power of Jesus Christ. He speaks, and it is done. He speaks, and there will be massive end to those in rebellion. Sharp sword. We're going to be sitting back behind him on our steeds going, Go Jesus! I'm with him. (laughs) Not them. I'm with him. Behind him. Verse 15 tells us he's also ruling with a rod of iron. It's a restatement of that prophetic promise as to to the millennial rule of Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And now we come to the very end of the war of Armageddon. Which, by the way, as we come to verse 17, is raging in the Jezreel Valley in the northern part of Israel as Jesus comes back in. This was Antichrist's plan. This was Satan's plan. Get all of the world enraged and in battle in one spot. And then when Jesus comes, try to turn them against Jesus. Watch this. Verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God. We've had a marriage feast. Now it's time for the great supper. So that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. I'll tell you, Sean may be reaching for his sword. I'm going to be scared myself. Can you imagine, when I was a kid, I remember going on a roller coaster for the very first time, and it was the um, Montezuma's Revenge at Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California. And all it did was go straight, do a loop straight up, and come backwards, and you're done. That's it. Scared me to death. And I remember standing in line with my dad, and I wanted to ride that ride, but all the way till I got on it, I was just going, Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. And when the ride took off, "Oh, Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. You know, just take off and go around the thing. And I was scared to death it was wonderful it was breathtaking it was awesome and I believe our ride with Jesus is going to be similar to that because we can get a little cocky in our human arrogance like, yeah I'm going to ride I'm going to be right beside Jesus right there and I'm taking down a few people as I go in that's what I'm going to do I think the reality is we are going to be in awe oh we will be riding but we're going to be back a few paces from Jesus just going holy 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 is the Lord he is awesome So this angel stands in the sun. He invites all the birds of the air to come to a great feast of human flesh. And the world's armies turn the full force of their their rebellion and their fury against Jesus. This is all part of this twisted plan. The 200 million man army from the east, Antichrist storming Israel to secure his power base. The kings from the south, probably the Pan-African nations, the northern armies from Europe and Russia, all gathered in an all-out massive war. Everyone against, ultimately at the beginning, they're all coming in to fight Antichrist, the prophet Daniel tells us, to come against him, and in the midst of this onslaught, of this fury, of this combustive war, Suddenly, the heavens split. Jesus comes in, and what does humanity do? They stop fighting each other. They see Jesus. They freak out, and they turn all weaponry on Him. They turn everything against Jesus. The whole fight centers now on one person, and it's the only person that could have saved them. And it's the one that they will turn to battle. Munitions exploding. Tanks tanks will be gunning and shooting and laser technology and GPS-guided missile systems. And with all the technology of all the military prowess of history aimed at Jesus, none of it will work. Talk about a missile defense system. On that white horse, he speaks a word and they are done. They don't have a prayer. Verse 20 tells us that the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now listen to this. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The rest, verse 21, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So what happens here at the end of this chapter? The beast and the false prophet, those two are cast alive into the lake of fire. They are done for, never to be seen again. They're toast. <laughs> like, literally. Okay? So they're gone. The rest of mankind that was battling there at Armageddon are slain, but are not thrown into the lake of fire. They're not immediately cast into hell. No, they are slain, but they are reserved for another judgment that will happen. We'll see next week in Revelation chapter 20. But the vultures come, the ma- all manner of birds come to this feast, and they're picking and are feeding on the carcasses. Have you, have you seen the, the second uh, Pirates of the Caribbean yet? It's a great scene where there's pirates in this cage, and this bird picks his eye out. you got to see it. But that's going to be going on. Very gross. So these birds and vultures are going to be feeding on the carcasses of everything that's left there in the valley of Megiddo. And I want to leave you with this thought. Our choices today, our choices today determine our dinner reservations for tomorrow. <laughs> okay? We can either enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb where the saints are blessed as the bride of Christ, and we are. Or, or the decision can be made to join the great supper of God where the nations are blessed as the main course. <laughs> As we bless this food that we're about to eat. And the birds will come and they will eat. Okay, 20 years ago, I was in honeymoon, you know, on my honeymoon in Hawaii. I was oblivious to world events. It was funny because I went back just to look at what was going on that summer. And I didn't even realize. I remember historically those things happening. I had no idea that they happened during that summer that I got married. During that time, because I was so just focused on Cheryl. She was focused on me, and that's, that was right and appropriate. It made a lot of people, friends of ours, kind of sick, but it was the right you know, thing, because we were in that, in that place in our, in our relationship. But I was oblivious to everything else going on. All I was concerned about was my bride. And I believe that that's what we have to look forward to. And it's not to say that we don't care. It's not to say that people on earth don't matter. It is to say that they will be God's business. The tribulation is God's business. He will take care of what he needs to take care of. But part of what he has promised to take care of is you and me. He's promised those who follow him, he's promised his children, his bride, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to take you up. I'm going to protect you. You are not to experience my wrath. That is not for you. The wrath is for those who reject and rebel and have have chosen not to allow me in. But those of you who will give me your lives and trust me, I will protect you. And we will see the coming of Jesus. We're going to be engaged in this fourfold hallelujah chorus. We're going to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to ride to rule and reign with Him. And that reigning we will get to next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the promise. For this great salvation. Thank you for the blessing, Lord, of knowing where we're going. Jesus, you said it. You said you know the way which I am going. Thomas wasn't so sure, but we now having the benefit of the scriptures before us and all these prophetic truths laid out, we know where you went. And we know that you're inviting us to go. Jesus, I pray that until we go, you will give us the perseverance of hope the knowledge that we are covered and protected and with that knowledge Jesus the boldness to speak your name as you said Lord not to fear those who could take the life those who could kill the body not to fear that Father would you remove bit by bit all of the fear that resides in us that keeps us from speaking the glorious name of Christ and embolden us to go out into this world and say the name And to speak out your word. And to live lives in submission to your word. We thank you so much for preparing for us those robes of righteousness. That we will wear one day at your marriage feast. At our marriage feast. Thank you Jesus. Thank you Lord in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen.